Yeah, so good morning again. My name's Cameron Gray from Harvest Bible Fellowship. Our church is not a part of James McDonald. Like, get get that out of your mind. We're none of that business. We're independent. 1689. We're about 10 to 15 minutes away from Dennis Clark, who I get a hold of as often as I can. I still have one of his books on Revelation. Never gave it back to him, and he said, go ahead and keep it. Great brother. So very thankful for him. Uh, The topic assigned to me is chapter 29, Baptism out of the 1689 Confession. So we're going to actually read that confession, the chapter. If you guys have it, if you can read it with me. There's four paragraphs. Paragraph 1, chapter 29. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, of remission of sins, and of giving up into God through Jesus Christ, to live and walk in newness of life. Paragraph 2. Those who do actually profess repentance towards God, faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ, are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. Paragraph 3. The outward elements to be used in this ordinance is water, wherein the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Paragraph 4. Immersion or dipping of the person in water is necessary to the due administration of this ordinance. And if you guys also would open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, if you guys would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We'll look at Acts 2 verses 37 through 41. The end of the sermon here. Acts 2 verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who, all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. You guys may be seated. Pray a blessing over our time and then we'll get into our lecture. Uh, Father, again, we do thank you that you've given us uh, men that we can stand upon their shoulders. Uh, We thank you for uh, great confessions like we have in the Second London Baptist Confession. We thank you for your word, which is perfect and without error, that we can read it and know that it is the very word of God. I do pray that you would bless our time this morning as we study this great doctrine of baptism, that it would be very clear for people that we would be encouraged and we would be strengthened. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to break down our study really just into three main sections. We're going to try to take the confession into the reasonable chunks. We have four paragraphs, but we're going to do three sections. Section one is what does baptism mean? Or what does baptism signify? That's going to be the first paragraph. Section two is who are the proper recipients of the ordinance of baptism? That's addressed in paragraph two of our confession. And then section three, how is baptism to be performed or what is the mode of administration? That's paragraphs three and four. And we'll also be looking at several scriptures as we go through this. 
I want to let you know this is not how I would normally preach our Lord's Day sermon. We're going through the Gospel of Mark now, verse by verse, but this is going to be a little more of a lecture format. But I will get fired up a couple times because, you know, you've got to exhort the brethren. Yeah. So we'll begin by looking at question one, is what does baptism signify? So baptism is first and foremost an ordinance that's given by Jesus Christ Himself. So we see His direct command and His instruction in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission. I'm sure you know it well, but let me read it for you. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this ordinance here is given by Christ. It's commanded by Him. And it's assigned primarily to the person that's being baptized. I know oftentimes we think of baptism as an expression that's given to the entirety of the congregation. And there is an aspect to that. But it's primarily a picture, a sign, a mark for him or her that they are members of the new covenant. And that they've been purchased by the blood of Christ. So the baptism ceremony, when it's being performed, it's between two parties. It's between God and between the recipient, the individual. And the ceremony is not always done in a large group setting. It's not always done in the local congregation, unlike the Lord's Supper, which is always when the church is gathered as a corporate body. Baptism in the Scripture sometimes is done in private. Sometimes it's done outside of the congregational setting. Let me give you a couple examples. The Ethiopian eunuch is one example in Acts chapter 8, verses 36 through 38. I'll read that for you. You guys can turn there as well in Acts 8, 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. This is a private event. It's not done with the gathered assembly of the church. Same thing in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. You have the family there. There are friends that are gathered to hear the message. The Spirit of God works and regenerates the heart of those that are there. God grants repentance to the Gentiles. And they're baptized. Again, it's a smaller setting. It's more of a private event. So we can say in some sense, I want you to understand, in some sense, baptisms, secondarily, they're proclaiming to those around observing That these are God's marked off people, right? It's proclaiming the gospel, but that's secondary. The primary significance is about that individual's covenantal connection to their king, King Jesus. And so in Acts 10 and Acts 8, we see in both those cases, the individuals, what do they do? They respond, and then the next step in obedience is baptism. It is the response of what God has done within the heart. And so when an individual is getting baptized, it's signifying three things. Number one, it signifies our being united to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. It's a picture of our being engrafted into Him. I mean, those of us in this room, I think we can understand this at least experientially, right? We once followed the ways of the world. We followed the pattern of this fallen world. Father was the devil. We were in bondage to our sins. We were, as Paul said in Ephesians 2.3, we were children of wrath, cut off from the promises, separated 
We were outside of Christ. That was us before coming to the Lord, or the Lord came to us. We followed in the footsteps of our first father, Adam. And yet what's signified in baptism is that we're united to a new federal head. Being adopted into God's family, we're now children not of wrath, but of mercy and grace. Praise God, right? Now turn to Romans 6, because this is a great text that points to this being united to Christ. Look at Romans 6, verses 3 through 5. Romans 6, verse 3, it says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Verse 5, that's what I want you to see. We're united with Him in His death, and we will certainly be united with Him in His resurrection. We're no longer spiritually dead sons and daughters of Adam. We are now spiritually raised saints in Christ. So that's the first thing baptism signifies. We are united to Jesus. Secondly, we can see in that same text in Romans 6, baptism also signifies the fact that we're now walking in newness of life. Look at verse 4. It says, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So when someone's baptized, they're signifying that the old man of corruption is now done away with. The new believer is now dead positionally to sin. It no longer has a hold on you. And you're dead practically to sin. You begin walking out what has been done within your heart. Now it's not as if the water is doing this, but it's signifying that you've been buried and now you're raised a new man. And this is, of course, the glory of the new covenant. Right? The covenant of grace, the new covenant is the covenant of grace. We are a new people in Christ. We have the law of God written on our hearts. We know the Lord. The Lord knows us. An intimate covenantal relationship. And we're given the Spirit of God. And the new covenant promises we're forgiven. By the way, this is why it's a way better covenant. It's the new covenant, right? Baptism marks us as one who's walking in this new covenantal life. Sin does not have a a grip on you judicially. Brethren, you're free. You're forgiven. You're the one who now obeys the law of God because of what God has done internally within you. So now the third thing that baptism signifies is our sins being washed away. I want you to turn to Acts 22. 22 verse 16. Paul here, he's recalling his conversion account. Acts 22.16, it says, Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. So the waters of baptism here, whether it's done in a pool or whether you do it in a baptismal or in a creek, like we do, there's no baptismal in our church. Dennis said we could use his if we need to. Thank you, brother. Or a river or a tub, whatever it is. It's not that the, the water's washing away your sin in some legal form. Physical waters don't do that, but it's, it's visualizing a cleansing that's being done within you. 
Right In the Old Testament, water is a cleansing agent. It still is today. It was used in purification rites. The priests would cleanse themselves as they're going to the temple, going to handle sacrifices. It wasn't as if the water was washing away corruption, but it pointed to an internal washing. Water doesn't remove sin. What removes sin, of course, is the blood of the Lamb. It's not an animal. It's the antitypical, perfect, typological Christ. His blood washes away our sin. Now, of course, there's various groups that have different views of baptism. Uh, some that believe baptism is a, an act of, I'll call it, quote-unquote, the process of justification, whatever that is. Like the Church of Christ movement, for example, in their extreme form, they require water baptism to be justified before God. So they would hold that regeneration doesn't occur until you've been in the water. Right? Baptismal regeneration. Or the Roman Catholic, quote-unquote, church, believes that baptism washes away your original sin, and it gives that child a clean slate so they can get jabbed or injected now with this infused grace throughout the rest of your life. That's a a wicked and a, a distorted view of baptism. Baptism is a means of grace, of course, and it's intended to signify our union with Christ, our new life in Christ, and our sins being removed. Immersed in water is a picture of regeneration that's been done on the heart by the Spirit of God. So that's the first question addressed. What does baptism signify? And I laid out those three, uh, three categories. Now, the second question our confession answers is who are the proper recipients? Well, the confession's very clear. It says those who personally profess repentance towards God and faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ Those are the proper recipients. Acts 2, I want you to flip there again. It's a wonderful text. Wonderful text. Acts 2, this is the first example we have of baptism here at Pentecost in the New Covenant. So we'll look through Acts 2, 37 through 41. We'll break down some of these passages here. I'll read verse 37 again. It says, Now when they heard this, these are the people hearing him preach. He just preached about Christ being crucified. And now, seated in heaven, taking the throne of David, verse 37, Acts 2.37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. What is this? This is conviction, all right? These people are convicted. God's going to grant, he's granting them something here. Repentance and faith, of course. And so what do they do? They say to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? That's what you do when you're convicted. How How can I be saved, Right? Verse 38, and Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's very clear here. Those who respond in faith will be the ones being baptized. That's what he's telling them, right? Now look at verse 39. For our Presbyterian brothers, I'm just kidding. This is our verse here, verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. Let's keep reading verse 40. And with many other words He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now the question is, why does Peter include children here in verse 39? Does that mean we should be baptizing our children? No, it does not mean that. Listen, here's the point Peter's making. He's speaking to a first century audience who had just crucified the Messiah. 
He's saying that even though this generation here, this present wicked generation, you've killed the Messiah. Guess what? Your sins can be forgiven. Right? They're crying out. They're understanding the guilt of what they've done. What can we do to be saved? They're calling out to Him. Because the covenantal curses were going to fall upon them because they have killed the Messiah. And they knew this. This was the weight that they felt. But Peter gives them really good news. Repent and be baptized. You'll receive the Spirit of God. And this is not just for you, by the way, people that were hearing it. Guess what? It's for your children too. They won't be cut off from the promise. They will not have to receive generational curses. They can come to faith in Christ too. And also, anyone else who's far off, including the Gentiles, it's actually all whom our Lord calls to Himself. That was the promise that Peter was giving. These are the rightful recipients. All who the Lord calls to Himself. In other words, listen, nobody's excluded. Repent and believe in the Gospel. That's the point Peter makes. And the promise for the repentant is that they will receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Case in point, those who repent and believe, who are generated and indwelt by the promise of the Spirit are baptized. Now look at, look at verse 41. It's so clear here. Which, just keep reading, right? It says, those who received His Word were baptized. Believer's baptism. There is no pedo covenantal baptism in here at all. And for those who make the case that that's here in verse 39, then does that mean that all the children of those believers receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? Because that's the gift being given. That's the promise. If they receive the Spirit, they are regenerated. Now in our case as confessional Baptists, we apply the covenant sign to covenant members. And you, come, you become a covenant member, guess what? By faith. By new birth, not by physical birth. Those who are born again are those who are baptized. Now Acts 2 is just one example. It's the earliest example we have in the New Testament Scriptures. Another example of believer's baptism, though, is very simply put, Great Commission text, Matthew 28. The order of the passage is very clear. You make disciples, you baptize, and you teach to obey. Conversion, immersion, instruction. That's what you do. Romans 6.3, we looked at that text earlier. It actually links baptism with a transformed life. You're baptized. You've died with Christ. You've been raised with Him. So you can walk in newness of life. How can that be applied to an infant who has not shown any fruit of repentance? Another text, 1 Peter 3.21. This is baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Of course, water doesn't save. It's an appeal to God. It's a subsequent act of obedience. And for one to appeal to God, you have to respond. This again is another text for credo or believer's baptism. Now, time doesn't permit to go through all the texts in the book of Acts where we see first the response and then the act of baptism which follows, but I do want to look at one more because we've got to do a household baptism text, right? Amen. So let's go to Acts 18. Acts 18, verse 8. This is Crispus. 
We're just going to simply read the whole verse here and let it speak to us. Acts 18.8 is a great example about household baptism. And it says this, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Notice the details. Crispus believed together with his whole household. Meaning they believed too. Pretty straightforward. And many of the Corinthians, they heard, they believed, and they were baptized. All in that one verse. It's believer's baptism. So the children here, the household, their baptism is an obedient step after their stated conversion. As Reformed Baptists, we understand baptism is to be the response to the saving work of God's gospel in our life. Thus, we do not practice paedo-baptism. Now, another brief polemic here. Our baby-sprinkling brethren, and we love them, They make the case that the Old Covenant sign, our brother made a good point here in regards to the covenants. They make the case that the Old Covenant sign was both for the regenerate and the unregenerate from infancy. And the Old Covenant was a mixed covenant. So not all were saved members of the covenant of grace, but they all had the outward administration, the mark of that membership, which was circumcision. Thus, the argument they make is as you get to the New Testament... We see no explicit statement that you no longer give your children the mark of the covenant. And since they equate circumcision with baptism, we should thus baptize our babies. Perhaps it's maybe too simply stated. I'm sure they would want to correct me. But that's at least a basic argument for their position. But first, let me offer some rebuttals here. First off, uh, circumcision does not equal baptism. One, the recipients are different. The Old Testament gave the mark of the covenant only to males, circumcision. In the New Testament, the ordinance of baptism is both for male and female. So at least everybody in the room could agree, there has to be at least an expansion in the New Covenant. But more than that, the signs actually signify something different. In the Old Covenant, circumcision was a sign that demanded people have a new heart. If you didn't have a new heart, you were then cut off from the blessings of the covenant. But in the new covenant, baptism actually professes the new heart. See that? Circumcision demands it. Baptism professes it. Doesn't demand it like circumcision did. As Romans 6 says, it professes that we are truly united to Christ. We've been buried with Him and now we're raised with Him. And all this makes sense when you understand that the new covenant is a, a new covenant. The new covenant is the covenant of grace. And the promise of the new covenant is that you have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah 31, we see that in Acts 2, Hebrews 8. All members of the new covenant will have their sins forgiven. Praise God, that's the covenant. That is a wonderful promise for us. All of us will know the Lord. Not just the remnant few in the old covenant. All of us will know the Lord in the new. And we will have the law written on the heart. And so the logic goes, again for us as confessional Baptists, if the sign of the new covenant is baptism, and to be in the covenant requires forgiveness of sins and then dwelling of the Spirit, then you should only be baptizing believers. Amen? Amen. Those who profess faith and obedience in Christ alone. So here's how this sort of plays out in our churches, our Baptist churches. We have two ordinances of baptism and the supper. 
And we should strive to be consistent. I think I heard that last night from one of my brothers saying, hermeneutically, you're not consistent. Thank you, Derek Vester. I'm calling you out on the recording. (laughs) But we should strive to be consistent between the Lord's Supper and also baptism. So here's what I mean. When we read God's Word, we believe that covenant members receive both the sign and the meal. And they both require self-examination. I'm always bewildered when someone baptizes a child, but they're withholding from them the table until they see signs of repentance. I would say, let's be consistent. right? The sign and the meal belong to all covenant members. Pull the child up and give them some wine. right? I mean, there's much more to say, but I'll digress at this point. We are convinced of, by the final authority of Scripture, is that baptism requires examination and repentance, Acts 2 at Pentecost we saw. It's the mark of entrance into the new covenant, and then the Lord's table is that sustaining meal we have as a new covenant member. And to hold that consistency, you must either affirm pedo baptism and pedo communion, or you affirm believer's baptism. Now lastly, the third question we're going to address here. I only had about 35 minutes total, so we're going to wrap this up pretty soon. The confession addresses the proper mode of this ordinance. So baptism is performed in the name of the triune God by immersion. Paragraph 3 of our confession states that baptism is done in water. I think it's fairly uh, obvious. We'll keep it pretty brief here. But we see examples of baptism in water through Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3. Jesus was baptized and immediately he went up from the water. Right? Or again, the example of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. They see water and they are baptized. He's baptized. But in addition, baptism is done in the name of the triune God, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus explicitly gave that command in Matthew 28. Now the examples we read in the book of Acts where they're baptized, quote-unquote, in Jesus' name, right? they're baptized in Jesus' name, that wasn't the verbal formula being used. What it was saying is, we are, be, we are baptizing by the authority of Jesus, He's the one who commissioned us, in other words. So we would reject the the oneness, modalist formula of baptism being in Jesus' name only. We even have historical records, for example, in the Didache, which provides for us the formula for baptism. It says, this is how you should baptize, having recited all these things, baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our baptism is into the covenant with the triune God of the Scriptures. Now lastly, we'll look at paragraph 4. Because the author addresses the mode of baptism, which is immersion. And there's never been any debate over this, so let me try to bring some debate to this topic. I'm joking. (laughs) Hundreds of years of debate. Should we baptize by immersion or sprinkling? Well, some considerations here. First off, the literal use of the phrase baptizo, baptize, means to immerse. It means to submerge, to plunge, or to bathe. And this is used over 80 times in the TR in the New Testament. For example, Mark 1.5, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Acts 8.38, He commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So that phrase in your concordance, it literally means to immerse or to plunge or to dip. Now, secondly, the phrase is used figuratively in regards to submerging in sorrow or affliction, right? To overwhelm someone is to baptize. 
So, like, they don't sprinkle troubles on you. <laughs> troubles are absolutely poured on you. You are immersed in trouble, right? You're submerged in trouble. Jesus used this in the Gospels. He spoke about a baptism that wasn't of water. He said this, Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, many commentators, they would describe this baptism as a suffering, being immersed into suffering. We, of course, know the apostles, less John, were all martyred for their faith. Our baptism was figurative for being immersed or plunged into suffering. So both the literal and the figurative use of baptizo means to immerse or to plunge. But we do have a problem passage, brethren, and it's in Mark 7. We must turn there. Because I think we might be got by the Presbyterians. Mark 7, verse 4. Mark 7, verse 4. I'll read this. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now, our Presbyterian friends would chuckle. Surely it doesn't mean they're immersing their couches in water. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it does. It does, friends. The tradition of the Pharisees was that upon touching someone who was common or unclean, it involved immersion or cleansing for them. Listen to what John Gill speaks here. He notes in his commentary, he references the washing of cups, pots, vessels, and even dining couches. Here's what he says. All these things were, according to the traditions of the elders, washed by immersion. Here's what he lists here. In a laver which holds 40 seahs of water, enough for a grown man like myself to be fully plunged into the water. This is water which were not drawn. Every defiled man dips himself. And in it they dip all unclean vessels, which includes dining couches. And many would say, how do you, how do you dip a couch? Well, a couch back then was like a pallet. Very simple. It's not like a huge couch you see today when you're going to, what it was it, Kittles or what are these places they have out here anymore? Nebraska Furniture Mart was out in Kansas City when we lived there. But they're basically a pallet. It's very simple where you could plunge it completely in the water. It's like a frame with no cushions. And so to take a text like Mark 7, 4, and to say they sprinkled or poured water on the couch and not immerse it, is number one, an incorrect and inconsistent use of the word baptizo. And number two, if this were true, if they were sprinkling or pouring, they are taking the exception, our Presbyterian friends, and they're making it the rule. And we all know that you should be interpreting any unclear passage by clear passages. Now, our brother Sam Waldron, he has an excellent commentary on the 1689 Confession. If you don't have it, everybody should have a copy. He affirms that baptism, again, literally means immerse or figuratively to overwhelm. And here's what he says in a quote. Baptism points to our being, being completely and spiritually immersed in Christ and overwhelmed by His Spirit. Which I say, Amen. Baptism is a powerful ordinance For the marking out of God's people, all who are united to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the power of the Spirit. The London Confession does a masterful job of laying out for us what baptism means, who are the appropriate recipients, and what is the proper mode of the ordinance. A very brief teaching on chapter 29 
but I do pray that it blesses God's people, and of course it's used ultimately for the glory of our great Lord. Uh, let me pray, and then I'll take one question and not from Derek. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Lord, we do thank you that we are able to, to teach on these things. I thank you for like-minded brethren. We're able to discuss this with an open Bible. And uh, we thank you that you've kept the unity of the church, even though we have minor disagreements with some of our friends uh, that have different perspectives on these passages. We thank you that you are growing your church, and we know the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Any questions, you guys? Oh, man. Anybody? Okay, go ahead, Derek. Anyone else can answer to you, by the way. I'm just a, you know. Uh, I do actually have a question. Sure thing. Uh, what would you do with someone that uh, is incapable of being immersed? Oh, wow. That you believe shows evidence of uh, true conversion? I've never practically dealt with that. Have any other pastors dealt with that? John, you dealt with that yet? And Brother Pastor, why don't, what's your name? Uh, uh, why would anybody be incapable of being? Uh, so uh, normally, uh, an example would be someone that's wheelchair bound uh, reading. Well, you would have to do what you do with other people in other settings of wheelchair. You have to have a yeah a chair, a special chair too, or, or special help. But I mean, when you when you baptize anybody, you have to have special techniques, right? I mean. That person, that person has to be helped down in the water and back up. So there, there needs to be real help. That's just a little more help. I don't, I don't see a. Yeah, well, either way, I mean, you are they. It's not like you're holding them down for three minutes. Anybody's going to die down there. I, I don't. I don't think that's a question. I have. I don't think that's a problem. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that. Hmm. Just I mean, they, 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 their face needs to go under for a, a second. That's not a problem. The, the Lord Jesus did not design so if somebody is truly saved on their deathbed, they're going to go to heaven even if they're not baptized. We, we all agree on that, right? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Dwayne, did you have something to add to that? We had a guy who was morbidly obese and couldn't move around, couldn't get into the, the pool, so we actually didn't immerse him, but our pastor poured, poured water on his head because he was incapable of okay. even getting into the baptistry and even being dumb or lifted up. Yeah, I mean, the dedicate talks about what, what if you are a missionary in an area with uh, that doesn't have adequate water for so that, uh, So I was just kind of wondering what the wisdom of the room was. Amen. I, I, I would have a easier uh, answer to that than I would somebody physically. Uh, to me, I would think that there are ways to gather the water to construct something where you could hold a baptism, but I don't know that. I, I just that would be my first thought. But my other thought would be that if if we take, for example, Paul's words where he he says to the Corinthians, "And I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you uh, because they were having trouble." Uh, 
I, I think that puts baptism into a little bit of perspective. And I, and I think that, that uh, and, and I'm going to put my neck out here on, on a limb, Bob, so chop it off. Uh, but, but I would have no problem if somebody was really, I would hate to have somebody have a heart attack as they were going under the water if they had a considerable heart condition and yet wanted to be baptized. I think I would have a, uh, a solution of having them come up and explain to the congregation based upon a physical condition, Brother so-and-so here would love to be baptized, but, but because of his situation, we are going to, again, remind ourselves of what baptism means, and this is what he is saying, not only to himself, but to this congregation, and we are going to recognize him as baptized only from this standpoint, is that that in most Baptist churches, baptism is a is a requirement for church membership. So, so if you'd ever run into it, I I agree with you, Bob, in this sense that I've yet to run into anybody who, who really couldn't be baptized. Uh, I, you know, I appreciate what you said. I mean, I think certainly uh, we live in a day where we're all getting larger. Uh, and and so that could certainly be a problem, uh, but I think there are issues around it, uh, and I'm not sure. I this is a question. Can I raise a question beyond oh, what you said? Yeah. <laughs> First off, I'm offended by your comment. We're all getting larger. Thank you. But but go ahead, fire away. No no no. You know, doesn't that bring up another question? If someone were went through and believed in believer's baptism, but they were not immersed at the time, say they've been saved 30 years, hmm. they come to your church, they have, they have been saved, and in their mind they've been baptized, let's say that they were poured or sprinkled or, hmm. or whatever, would a Baptist church recognize that and allow them into membership, or would they require them to be rebaptized because it didn't follow the biblical pattern? Yeah, Bob's going to answer that. <laughs> you have a response to that? That's, that's a good. He's <laughs> smiling. I mean, that's a good question. I, I'm I'm a young pastor. These are all the questions I'd probably call you and ask you about. Yeah, to be honest, right. brother. So I, well, I, I've got my own opinion, but I'm not sure my opinion's right. <laughs> I mean, that's the, what did they do in the early Baptist churches? What did they do in the first Baptist churches in the 1600s? Those men baptized one another. Do you believe they were baptized hmm. as infants? You bet they were. It's not a, it's not a believer's baptism, that's the point. Yeah, I'm talking about believer's baptism. I'm not talking about infant baptism. Okay. I'm talking about... Well, what, what, does, what does the confession say? What is a valid baptism? An immersion. What does it say? I mean, I didn't say that. So you, so you would, in your church, you would, you would rebaptize or baptize them for the first time. Okay. John, what would you do, brother? I mean, you, you, have, a pro, you have a problem like the PCA has a problem if you don't adhere. PCA will take a Catholic. A Catholic baptism? Well, then they're taking infant baptism, right? Yeah. Yeah, because it was, huh. it was done with good intent. Yeah. 
they intended to perform Christian baptism, therefore they did. John, brother. <clears throat> there are debates among confessional Reformed Baptists uh, over whether to recognize uh, other modes uh, of baptism. Uh, again, some of say saved in the PCA church, they're baptized upon their profession by having water sprinkled on them. Uh, you know, so it, it's it's a believer's baptism in that sense, but the mode is not immersion, right? That kind of question. And so the, the debate in terms of the confession comes down to paragraph four, immersion or dipping of the person in water is necessary to the due administration of the ordinance. So there's, there's a question of... Um, can, can there be a, a valid baptism without a right administration of it? And, and, and that distinction, um, so for example, um, um, Dr. Sam Waldron's on record as saying he would allow other modes if it was upon a credible profession of faith. So he would allow somebody who's made a profession of faith but water was poured or sprinkled. Um, and so, but, but he's going to lay great weight on that. It's the due, the due administration, but there could be a valid... Um, valid baptism without the due administration of that. So there's there's some debate over the the weight of, of that language. Um, um, but but in in general, obviously we seek to follow the biblical pattern uh, and, and immersion. And and I just found in the Reformed Baptist world there, there's kind of a tension on that question over what's a valid baptism versus the due administration. And, um, and the Pio-Baptists make a big deal out of whether the apostles were baptized or not. Mm -hmm. A big deal out of that. And you've kind of got to answer that question. Yeah. You've got to answer that question yeah. for yourself. Yeah. I'm not a pastor, but I want to add one thing to the original question, and that is my older daughter has an intense, irrational fear of submerging. And that might also be a case of someone who would think would. So during her baptism, she professed faith and was baptized. We talked about it ahead of time to let her know that this is required. This is something. This is and um, she panicked during the during the baptism, um, but she she came up and and again the explanation. So I'm just saying, even in a case of an irrational fear, uh, again we felt that baptism was. She understood it. She was willing to, um, uh, to, to deal with the consequences of this. That helps clarify anything. We can wrap it up, Doug. Right. Uh, everybody, get your phones out. Um, get your phones out. And uh, thank you, Pastor Cameron. Um, you're very faithful, brother, to what our confession taught, and we appreciate that. Uh, thank you so much for your effort and labor. Uh, your phone's out. Uh, dial in this phone number, 317-945-2262. That's my cell phone number. We didn't uh, have a sheet 